Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this evening will be taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This week I've been thinking about what to talk about tonight, and this is what I decided. I, I don't uh, consider this to be an exhaustive list of just two things, but two things are what I'm going to bring tonight in this lesson, which I consider to be significant threats to Christians as we begin 2023. One of these is from without, and the other of these is from within. I want to talk about both of them. And this is, this is just cautionary. This is to try to immunize us from what I think are significant threats to the Lord's church today. And I want us to be uh, aware of them and to make sure that we don't fall into the devil's devices in reference to these two matters. The first one is from without. In many circles, it's not cool to be a church-going Christian anymore. And politically, and maybe especially in the South, I don't know, it's often associated with the political right And these people are pro-nuclear family. They are pro-life. They believe that gender is assigned at birth. They're opposed to homosexuality and to homosexual marriage and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. And in reference to much of our country today, that's considered very backwards and old-fashioned and typical of people who don't think. According to a study recently published, people in Christendom are leaving, in, and I'm just talking about, not talking just about the Lord's church, but about Christendom ecumenical broad uh, churches under this broad umbrella of Christendom. People are leaving in large numbers, and what they're leaving for is no religion. This is a recent book by the man named Stephen Bullivant, and it's entitled Nonverts, and that's a play on words as opposed to converts. The Making of Ex-Christian America. Oxford University Press published it. He said this kind of religious change that we've seen in America doesn't happen in the space of 20 or 30 years, typically like it has in our country. And he speculates why this massive shift to where people who weren't religious, who didn't believe in God in America, were pressed socially. I think, I think that you just knew that you didn't fit in so much. So now it's flipped over, and it's the opposite. And he said there were three reasons for this. The, the non-verts, the people who now, when ask on a document, what is your religious preference? Just check none, because they have no religion. They prefer it that way. He said there are three reasons this happened, and it's happened so quickly in our country. 
And, and the first one is the end of the Cold War. Now, I wouldn't have thought of this one, but he did. And what he said is that, that prior to the end of the Cold War, when it was going on, that Americans typically were very nervous if they didn't believe in God to express that. Because if they expressed disbelief in God, some form of agnosticism or atheism, that they would be associated with godless socialism, godless communism. And they didn't want that societal backlash from that. They didn't want how people would look at them if it was assumed they were socialists. My, my, we've come a long way since then, haven't we? But anyway, when pointing to how come we have this rapid, massive shift in America to, to the nuns, no religion. He, he pointed the Cold War ending and that, that after it ended, there was no more, more stigma attached to being an atheist. Number two, the internet. If you lived somewhere in a small town in Kansas and you disbelieved God, you probably wouldn't talk about it and you'd probably have a hard time finding someone who agreed with you, who, with whom you could share your lack of faith. But the internet, of course, opened up spaces all over the planet. And you could, I mean, no matter where your mind went, you could find somebody who agreed with you and who could expand these ideas. And as a result, well, the people who leaned toward atheism or had doubts, they found lots of company. The third thing that he points to is is a little bit hard to say because grammatically it doesn't seem right, but he said it this way, the nuns are rising because the nuns are rising. And for those of you who are listening digitally, it's spelled N-O-N-E-S. No, no religion at all. Check the nun. And he said, he said, because we're living, living in a culture now where it's become sort, sort of trendy. You're viewed as being maybe a little deeper thinker, a higher thinker, than to be somebody who would follow the mythology of Christianity, that somehow you're just not a real thinking person, or you wouldn't, you must have some sort of psychological needs to depend on this mythological crutch that you lean on. And if you work, in an atmosphere where that's just kind of the popular opinion, you may be tempted to become one of the nuns. And I think maybe there are times in Huntsville, Alabama, that Christians may be particularly challenged with this. We should contemplate hell. We should contemplate the reality of Scripture and the truth of Scripture, and we should be anchored there. We should contemplate the reality of death and that we're not going to be here forever, and the reality of a life beyond this one, rooted in the creation of our universe around us. And the Bible says in Romans 1 that the evidence of God's hand is so prolific, it is so obvious that people who disbelieve him are without excuse. So I know that's just a tidbit, but I I was reading about that and I thought I would share it with you. So here we have from the outside, I think that we've got pressures and challenges that we're facing about our faith from the outside. But then the second one is from the inside. And I want to start this with, I don't know, you're going to wonder what I'm talking about, I guess, but this is a ledger. I, I have a friend in Fayetteville. If you live there, Fayetteville, Tennessee. You don't say Fayetteville. That's how it's spelled. But if you live there, you say Fayetteville. 
And I have some good friends there. And one of them is an elder in the church, and he owns an auction company. And it's family-owned business. It's been going on a long time. His name is Van Massey. And anyway, so his son has a company, and they sell cattle, and Van sells real estate. And, And online now, what he sells is estate sale things. And so a family that's just got a bunch of stuff left over, and, and they want to move it quickly, well, Van will do it online for them. And I don't, I don't know about charges and all that stuff, but people just move lots of stuff. And, and because it is handed down through families, sometimes there's some rather interesting things. And so Van will send me these emails occasionally. And over the years, I've, I've bought three or four things from him. The other day before Christmas, he sent me such an email. And I, I looked through and... There was a box of old books. Now, I'm married to somebody who really likes very old readers from elementary school, the really old ones. And on the top of the box of books, there were a couple of these old readers, and I thought, well, I just, I just need, to, I need to do that. And so I bought the box, and, and I went and got it and brought it home, and, and I thumbed through them. And the most interesting thing, you know, this is a family in um, most of the things that had dates on them. You had receipts and things like that tucked in books, but it was from the 1940s. And uh, then you had some books that were obviously old and published a long time before that. But you learned something about this family that lived in Tennessee, and they were dairy farmers. And, and you had children's books. And it was clear that you had a mother who loved her babies, and she was reading to them from these books. And some of them were very old readers, and some of them a little more recent, perhaps in the 1950s or so. You had, um, you had this ledger, and you can thumb through it, and, and it shows you that they had some, uh, some financial challenges. They had a dairy farm, and so this is very detailed. It talks about how much for the blacksmith, how much they spent for labor, how much they spent for this cow, uh, all, lots and lots of things. Uh, that, that are in this ledger. So I know something about the family. I don't do I think they had a, a mother who read to her children, but also that they had a business, a dairy farm, family-owned dairy farm, and they kept up with their financials. And so I'm sure, sure they had some financial stresses that are evidenced by this book. You had some um, two copies of Alcoholics Anonymous books. And I thought, well, that's very sad. Of course, what that means is that in their family, they had somebody who was an alcoholic. And, and I wonder what the struggles were and how they went, how deeply they went. And then you had, had a picture, a photograph, only one, but a photograph, a five by seven, that looked to be from the 19, maybe the early 40s, perhaps the late 30s, a gentleman who was middle-aged. And, uh, you know, you have to wonder about that. Why was it there? Maybe it was because the family finally just didn't care about this big nobody there was nobody out there in the whole world who cared about this man anymore nobody and so the the picture was just tossed in with the box of books at the auction I wondered if it was the alcoholic you wonder you know I mean was it the case that there were so many problems so many heartaches that were connected to his alcoholism that that now the family felt different about him and it's in the box of books the bible was not there just crossed my mind. I, I expect being from where they were from, they must have been religious people. But maybe it's because they valued the Bible so highly that some, the last person in the family handed it to a dear friend or somebody they treasured and said, this is our family Bible. 
Now, I know you're wondering why I'm talking about all of that, but it's to make an illustration. The second threat that I, I want to argue that we are facing in 2023 in our Christianity has to do with congregations of the churches of Christ that have gone far to the left. And I want you to think about some of the argumentation that is being made. In the story that I just told you, most of what I said is obviously speculation. I don't know. I don't, I don't know this family. I don't know really anything. I mean, I took a box of books and I just made some speculative uh, assumptions. And, and then you know that. And if you picked up the box of books and you thumbed through it in the ledger and the picture and the alcoholic, you, 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 might, you might just come up with a different view of them. And that's very similar to how some people view the New Testament in reference to the church. That every person may see scripture, scripture differently, and yet all of, all of us be equally right. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, we can't really know. And here's how the argument goes. No Christian is perfect in all things. But that's Okay. The cross makes it possible for imperfect people to be saved by the mercy and grace of God. That statement is true. Of course it's true. Nobody nobody in this world would have any hope at all were it not for the grace of God. But then from that you extrapolate this. You take it the next step. Therefore, anyone who is sincerely trying to be a Christian, regardless of his beliefs or his practices, is as right as anybody else because of grace. I mean, we all cling to grace, and nobody claims they are perfect. And it seems inevitable that there will be times in our growth that we don't have everything right. So here's the conclusion, is that if you claim anything in Christianity to be absolutely true and binding for salvation, that has to be universally true and universally applicable to all people, if you bind anything to that level, then you are radical, arrogant, legalistic, and you don't accept the grace of God, not truly. And what happens in these churches is that because of this viewpoint, this loose viewpoint, they, they start accepting worship practices that are not authorized. It's no big deal. I mean, have instrumental music, so why not? We'll have a contemporary service, and we'll have a traditional service. And you can just take your pick of what you like, because we can't really know the truth. And the, the leadership in the pulpit and the eldership and deacons should include women. After all, women are as smart as everybody else, and people do have different views about this. And so why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we grow our numbers? We could do that if we would let women be in the eldership and the deacons and the preachers. And then to assert that the church of Christ is merely a denomination in the great sea of denominations, despite what we teach or practice, that if we don't get that, there's just something wrong with our thinking. We're just another denomination among all the denominations, no matter what. Now listen closely, because this is critical. This is critical. I do not know Everything about mathematics. Brother Andrews is much closer to that than I am. You know, he taught mathematics in Russia. 
That may be why we're having so much trouble with Russia these days. I don't know. I do not know everything about mathematics, but that does not imply at all that I don't know anything about mathematics. There's some things about mathematics that I know for a hard, cold fact. Hard, cold, steel fact. I don't have to say those to you. You know what those kinds of things are that everybody in this room knows. You'd stake your life on it because it's just plain out factual truth. The fact that I don't know everything about mathematics, and if I was given a mathematics test, I suppose I would miss some, depending on the level, does not imply that I don't know anything about mathematics. And sometimes it's critical how much you know that it's factual. I may not know all that's in the Bible, and I don't believe the Bible teaches about a maniacal God who delights in dangling us over a devil's hell, but I know some things which he plainly requires of us to be right, despite the fact that we serve an infinitely gracious God. Let me give you some examples. Here are six things that I know to be facts if the Bible is the word of God, and it is. Number one, avoiding condemnation involves being baptized into Christ and then living a dedicated life. That's what, it, that's what the Bible says. Here's Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There's no condemnation, that's hell, you know, to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's, this is Romans 8. Romans 6 says that we're baptized into Christ. All right, that's chapter 6, verse 3. We're baptized into Christ. Then chapter 8 says, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. In other words, they live their lives according to the teachings of the spirit-given New Testament. The Holy Spirit gave us the New Testament through inspired men. Number two, I know for a fact that if the Bible is the word of God, and it is, that doctrine and how we live matters in the Lord's church. Now you pick up Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what you have is Jesus, through John, the revelator, giving report cards to these seven churches of ancient Asia. And you can read through there, and you'll find some similar problems going on in different churches. And so he'll say, you're getting this right. This is really good. And then there are some things. Now, he gives them this stern warning that if you, if you don't get this right, I will remove your candlestick or your lampstand out of its place. That's a stern warning. What kinds of things? Chapter 2, verse 14, false doctrines. The doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In chapter 2 and verse 20, sexual immorality. In chapter 3 and verse 3, to have your sleepy church, you have a name that lives, but you're dead. Chapter 3 and verse 3, you're lukewarm. There were things that he wouldn't tolerate, that the Lord wouldn't put up with. I will no longer consider you to be a congregation of my people if you don't fix these things. That is reality, despite the fact that it came from the lips of Jesus, who we know is infinitely gracious. I think that by today's standards, in some of these churches, Jesus would certainly be called a legalist because he binds 
things. Number three, it is a fact that according to the Bible, immoral living will keep a person out of heaven. You talk about homosexuality, no matter how the world hates us when we say it, it will keep people out of heaven. Here's 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. I don't hate anybody. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just saying it's objective truth that this is what the Bible says. Do I love grace? Are you kidding? I can't be saved without grace. But a grace that says, because he is gracious, nothing will be bound, is false. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Look at the list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, they're Christians now, so they left those sins. They were forgiven, and they're heaven-bound. But what if they continued in them? The clear teaching is that they would not have heaven. It'll keep you out of heaven. And that, in the same New Testament, that teaches that Jesus has grace, and Jesus and God is full of grace, and that we're saved by grace. Living and sleeping with a man or a woman to whom you're not married will keep you out of heaven whether or not you've been baptized. Galatians 5.19 says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. And he goes on and he says, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Immoral living will keep a person out of heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a man who is living with somebody else's wife. And the whole chapter is to say, you've got to withdraw from that man. You've got to deliver such a one unto Satan. And there's a, there's a powerful teaching there. That in the same Bible, the same New Testament, which teaches that our Lord is full of grace. But, but you cannot stretch that to suggest that there are no hard, fast things that will judge us in the end. Divorcing your wife and marrying your mistress will not create a God-approved marriage. You'll be married to that person legally, but you'll still be in adultery. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marry another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her which is put away commits adultery. Number four, baptism that's into Christ is immersion and is for the purpose of receiving remission of sins and saving a person. And no other baptism will be accepted by God. You say, well, now, we, we baptize in our denomination. We do, but, but we baptize because God, for Christ's sake, has already forgiven this person's sins. He prayed for salvation. He received salvation. And then he was baptized as a sign that he's already saved. If the Bible is true, that baptism is not. Because that's not what the Bible says. And that's a fact. In Acts 19, you have 12 men who were baptized with John's baptism after it was obsolete. 
Oh, they were baptized in order to please God. They were baptized by their understanding of what baptism should be and what they should do. And they wanted to do the right thing and their hearts were right. So far as I can tell from scripture, but they had to be baptized again. The reason was that it wasn't right. Oh, it was immersion. It was right about that. Baptism is always immersion. Always, always, always. True baptism. But it was baptized, they were baptized with a wrong motivation. They were baptized with John's baptism. And it was obsolete at that point. And so they had to be baptized again. Acts 2 and verse 38 is always going to read the same way. That baptism is for the remission of sins. It is in order to obtain the remission of sins. And if baptism that's performed is for some other reason, it will not be accepted by God. And that's a fact. Number five, a Christian, and we're talking about grace. We're talking about a standard. And, and if we truly love grace, is it the case that we will create congregations like it's like has been done and is being done right now, where their worship practices go outside the circle of what the New Testament teaches and they bring in the instrument and they have women to be in leadership roles and all of these kinds of things. And they, and they, they, they want to mix together with various religions while ignoring what they teach, for example, about how a person is saved. We just, we're just one other denomination and you, 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 you have looked at the box of books in one way and you have your own interpretation of the different books and the ledger and the alcoholics and not. You, you made your own assumptions and we made different assumptions but it doesn't matter and then in result we all have our own thoughts and Jesus is about grace and so everything's good if the Bible is true that point of view is false So number five is a Christian who is saved can live in such a way as to be lost. Here's Galatians 5. We could talk about a number of passages in all of these points, and I'm not doing that, but just to give you an understanding, because you don't have to have 10. You just have to have one that says it plainly. In Galatians 5, verse 3, I testify to every man who becomes circumcised. That is, the problem was they were reaching back and, and going back into the old law. They were living by the law of Moses after becoming Christians. You do that about circumcision, and he says, you become a debtor to do the whole law. Are you ready to do that? You ready for that? You become estranged from Christ. Come on, they're sincere. It doesn't say anything. Isn't it interesting? No reference is made here to their sincerity. Of course they're sincere. I'm not questioning that. But he says, you stop this now. You're a debtor to keep the whole law if you do that. You become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, the law of Moses, you've fallen from grace. It is a true statement that the Bible teaches a Christian who is saved can live in such a way as to be lost. Number six. Here's the last one I'm going to give. There are essential things in Christianity which must be believed and must be defended. Now, to demonstrate this, and again, we could go other places, but you don't need to do that. I, I think that we can do this in a short fashion. Is to go to Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4. And Paul says, here's how the church that Jesus died for can be unified. Most people say that's impossible. Paul didn't believe it. You want to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Here it is. And it's about what we believe. 
It's about what we defend. And it's very, very explicit. There is one body. Now, this is Ephesians 4 and verse 4. If you go to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he says the body is the church. How many? One. There's one body and one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit who gave us the New Testament, right? That means, what is he emphasizing? If, if there's one spirit, the answer is that there's one truth. That's what we have. It's, it's what is written on the pages of inspired writ. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith. The faith is the practice of true religion. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. How legalistic, how, how very cruel of you to say. People practice all different, sincere people in Christendom practice different baptisms. How cruel of you to say. How arrogant of you to say. There's one baptism. Come on. It's not arrogance. It's objective truth. One God and Father of all, who's above above all and through all and in you all. There are as many faiths in Scripture as there are gods. There are as many baptisms according to Scripture, as there are gods or lords or spirits. I'm so grateful for the grace of God. An imperfect man can be saved. I believe the Bible teaches that we live in a saved condition. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Romans chapter 4 and verse 8. I'm so thankful for his grace. But this view of grace that I've been talking about, taken by liberal churches among us, comes from the philosophies of men and not after God. Here's Colossians 2 and verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, And you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. This view of grace, I would argue, has already been talked about a long time ago by the Apostle Paul when he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? I mean, you know, you're talking about churches where if you you want to marry, divorce your wife and marry your, your other woman... You know, you got churches where you can go and it's going to be fine. I mean, there's lots of people in the church and people are not going to, the elders are not going to look into that. They don't care about that because we understand grace in this church. And I'm just saying it's inconsistent with the New Testament. Churches that are doing all these kinds of things that I've been talking about because of grace and this view of grace. And I'm saying it's inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who died to sin? And incidentally, the implication is we could know what sin is. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the, he will reward them who diligently seek after him. What do you suppose it means that they diligently seek after him? If not, that we are diligent seekers, diligent students of the Bible, acknowledging and realizing our weaknesses and the importance of his grace while also appreciating that while we don't know everything, it doesn't mean that we do not know anything and that there are very plain statements describing what we're responsible for and the the law to which we'll be held accountable. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for listening. And I I hope that this is going to be the greatest year of your life. I do not know the future, and we talked about that this morning, but I hope it's a wonderful year for you and for this great church. Is there somebody here tonight who wants to obey the gospel? I don't have to hesitate to talk about how a person does that because you can read it in your own Bible, how that we must repent of our sins and confess the name of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and that we must be immersed into Christ, into his death for the forgiveness of sins. That is, 1 Peter 3.21, in order to be saved. I know that. And you can obey the gospel tonight and you can be saved and you can know from Scripture that it's the right thing. And maybe tonight you need and wish for the prayers of the Christians here for whatever reason and we're, we're here for that purpose to help you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. Brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.